Let's open our Bibles this evening to the book of Malachi, the little book of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. Book of Malachi. It's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. If you get to the New Testament, you've gone a little too far. Go back to your left, and you'll find Malachi. Before we begin uh, in our message for tonight, I want to give a little backstory back here on the book of Malachi, a little bit of the context. It is the last book in our Old Testament, and chronologically, it is also the last book that was written. After the book of Malachi, there was a period of time of about 400 years in which there was no direct revelation from God until the ministry of John the Baptist came. And the spiritual condition of Israel at this time was very, very poor. Israel had become very backslidden, gotten away from the Lord. They were not worshiping as they should. They were kind of just going through the motions. They would still do sacrifices. They would still, you know, do some of the things that they were supposed to, but their heart was, was really not in it. And they were doing a lot of things that they shouldn't be doing, breaking God's law. They were sinning against the Lord. And really it was a national problem. It had gotten to the point that just as a, as a nation, they were really away from God. And we just recently finished our study in the book of Judges and we saw that kind of vicious cycle that Israel went through there. That cycle is really kind of repeated throughout the Old Testament. You have some periods of revival and then you have many periods of idolatry and, and uh, wickedness. And, and ultimately, uh, it culminated with God sending foreign invaders, uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, to uh, punish Judah and Israel. They were carried away cap in captivity for a while. And then Israel, uh, Judah was uh, able to come back to the land and, and uh, Jerusalem was rebuilt. The temple was rebuilt in Ezra and Nehemiah. And they kind of got reestablished in the land, but Israel never really got back to the place they ought to be spiritually. And when we come to the book of Malachi, there's literally been hundreds of years of history now of the Israelites rebelling against God, suffering the consequences, but failing to learn their lesson and doing it over and over and over again. And so when Malachi was led of the Lord to write this prophecy... Uh, and to put this down in writing for God's people then and now. He begins in verse number 1 by saying, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Tonight we're going to look at these two verses and, and others in the book of Malachi and throughout Scripture and really examine the spiritual state of the Israelites at this time. And if I had to characterize how they were spiritually, I would say they were apathetic, they were desensitized, and they were utterly rebellious. 
You've heard the one about uh, the two guys that were talking, and the one said to the other, you know, I think the problem with our nation right now can be boiled down to this, ignorance and apathy. And the other fellow said, I don't know, and I don't care. Kind of use that as my title tonight, because I think that describes the spiritual condition of Israel in, Mal in Malachi's day. Don't know? Don't care. And I'm concerned that there are a number of Christians who have the same kind of attitude today. That when it comes to spiritual things, they're saved, they're on their way to heaven, they know that. But when it comes to living righteously, honoring the Lord, and really enjoying our relationship with God, there's just an ignorance and an apathy there. Don't know, don't care. Just so long as my life's going smooth-ish, I'm fine. Leave me alone. And there's a, there's a lack of a true heart desire for holiness and righteousness and to truly walk with the Lord, to be right with God and to honor Him in all that we say and do and think. Just a, a spiritual lukewarmness. You know, God reprimanded one of the churches in Revelation because they were neither hot nor cold, but they were lukewarm. And tonight, as we think about the where Israel was in Malachi's day, we need to honestly examine our own hearts individually. Because if there's apathy in our life, if we have allowed ourselves to be desensitized to sin, if we're living in rebellion against God, then the same warning that God gave to the Israelites applies to us. There will be judgment. God loves us too much to let us sin and get away with it. He will chastise us. He will judge us so that we might live righteously and enjoy the blessing of it and glorify Him through it. So there are similarities between us and the Israelites because we too must repent of our sin in order to truly enjoy our relationship with the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we examine your word tonight, please give us an understanding of it that we cannot achieve ourselves. I pray that the Holy Spirit would enlighten us, help us to to make the connections, help us to truly take it to heart. Lord, we, we ought to be people who honor you, who walk with you, who live righteously and holy so that, Lord, you are glorified and as a result, we get the blessing of that closeness and that fellowship with you. So, Lord, work in our hearts Teach us what we need to know and change us how we need to be changed. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one, I want you to consider with me tonight Israel's sin. As Malachi begins his prophecy here, he describes what he has to say as a burden. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. A burden is something that weighs heavily on you. And as a prophet of God, there was something that was weighing heavily on Malachi's heart. And as you read through the book, and we don't have time to do that tonight, you, you learn very quickly what was weighing so heavily on Malachi's heart. It was the sin of the nation of Israel. 
Everywhere around him that he looked, he saw people who had seemingly no care, no concern whatsoever for living for God and doing what was right. And rightly so, he was burdened about this. Israel was in a horrible spiritual state. As I've said already, they were apathetic about spiritual things. They just didn't care. To the point that they had become desensitized to it, they no longer even felt a twinge of conviction when they were confronted with their sin. Instead, they defended it. And ultimately, they were rebellious and that they refused to repent of their sin and they stubbornly continued doing the same things they'd been doing over and over and over again. There had been sin in their lives for so long that they no longer cared. And when that sin was pointed out to them, they responded with a rebellious resistance to the authority of God and God's Word. Now, how how do we get to the point that we are desensitized to sin in the first place? Let's talk about that, the digression to being desensitized. Well, we get a hint of it here in verse number 1 as Malachi says that this is a burden of the word of the Lord. The first step toward desensitization actually starts with the conviction that comes from the word of God. So step number 1 is when you and I are convicted by the word of God about the sin in our lives. You know, a person does not just wake up one day totally desensitized to sin. That is, a Christian does not just get out of bed one day randomly and decide, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to take part in every known sin that I can find. And they turn away from God instantly and away from the things of the Lord and they all automatically become wicked. That's not how it happens. It's a process, a step-by-step process that one goes through. It begins, though, with conviction over sin that is in our life. Now, conviction is simply when the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, shows you you're wrong. It's when you and I have our sin pointed out to us. We call that conviction because it is being convinced that we are wrong. The problem is we hate being wrong. We hate admitting that we're wrong. We hate it so much that we will sometimes refuse to admit that we're wrong, even though we know that we are wrong. I know that's not logical, but humans are very illogical people, especially when it comes to defending ourselves. We will claim that we are right, even sometimes in the face of God's Word. God says, thou shalt not, and we say, well, that can't be right, because I like doing that. And so conviction is when you do something sinful and the Holy Spirit shows you that it's wrong. Now the appropriate response to conviction is sorrow that leads to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse number 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. The godly response, the proper response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit is to Repent. When the Holy Spirit says, this is wrong, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't think this. You shouldn't act this way. You shouldn't watch that. You shouldn't go there. 
You shouldn't allow those people to influence you. You shouldn't indulge your flesh in this way. Whatever it is, when the Holy Spirit says that we are guilty, the right response is to agree with the Holy Spirit, to agree with God, and repent to change our minds and change our ways. Now, the step toward desensitization, the first step, is when we're, we have that conviction, but instead of responding with repentance, we say, eh, no big deal. So number two in the digression to de being desensitized is the apathy that sets in. Now, there's various ways that this can happen. One of the most common ways that we become apathetic towards sin is by convincing ourselves that it's really not all that bad. The Holy Spirit convicts us of a certain sin and we think, well, that's not that bad, is it? I mean, I can think of a host of other sins that are far worse than this. I mean, this little bad habit is not really hurting anybody. It's not, you know, some gross public sin that, you know, that everybody can see and would somehow you know, tarnish the reputation of Christ on a large scale. And, and so we, we downplay the sin in our mind and, and we say, that's oh, not that bad. And thus we begin to become apathetic towards it, not really care. If one does not respond to conviction with repentance, then the apathy begins to set in. It's that simple attitude of, I really don't care that much. And it's kind of a scale it's not 100% one way or the other. Sometimes it's, you're sort of apathetic. Sometimes you're really apathetic. But any amount of apathy towards sin is wrong. Apathy is really kind of in the middle. It's not aggressively wicked, but it's not actively holy either. Turn over to Revelation chapter 3 for a moment. I referenced this a second ago. Revelation chapter 3. writing to the churches that were in Asia Minor. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these seven letters. And uh, for several of them, there was some sin that needed to be pointed out. And to the Laodiceans, in verses 14 and following, there was a particular sin. Verse 15 says it this way, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Apathy is really the sin of lukewarmness. It's just trying to be there in the middle. And really it's the worst of both worlds. The Holy Spirit used this illustration of being neither cold nor hot to help us understand the idea. Being lukewarm, I, I know for myself, I like coffee. Many of you know that. A lot of you like coffee too. And I'm of that generation where I actually like hot coffee and iced coffee. How many of you like iced coffee and you admit it? All right, a number of you. Very good. Oh, there's some folks older than me that like it. Good. I don't feel so bad. I like hot coffee. I like iced coffee. I like coffee that can be in the middle-ish. But I don't like room temperature coffee. 
If I have room temperature coffee, I'm going to go one way or the other. I'm going to put it in the microwave and heat it up, or I'm going to put some ice in it and cool it down. I don't, I don't like the lukewarm coffee. So you kind of understand the illustration here. But for Laodicea, it was even more of a really stark illustration because Laodicea was known for two things. They had a hot spring that they used for medical purposes, and they also had fresh water springs where they had good clean water. So they had hot water and they had cool water. But when you would pour your water out after being done with it, it would mix together and run down the gutter of the streets. And what you would have in the gutters was lukewarm water. And God says, you're neither hot, you're not beneficial for medicinal purposes, you're not cold, you don't refresh anybody, you are lukewarm. You're like the gross water running down the gutters of the street. That is apathy. That's just, eh, I don't care. Nobody could say, you're living a horrible, wicked life. But neither can anybody say, you are really serving God and living holy and righteous. You're just kind of meh, there in the middle. And that's the second step toward being totally desensitized because here's what happens. The next step and the last step past apathy is where you're totally desensitized to sin. Whereas apathy reacts towards sin with a, well, I don't really care. The one who is desensitized doesn't even realize that it's sin. That the action or the attitude is sinful and thus there's no reaction at all. 1 Timothy 4 and verse number 2 talks of the ungodly, says of them that they, they're speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Your conscience seared. What happens when a part of your skin gets seared? Well, you lose sensitivity there. You lose feeling there. If you've ever had a, a very, very significant burn, like a, sec, a heavy second or a third degree burn, then you know what that's about. You've, you've had it, you've lost feeling in that area, sometimes permanently. Well, when your conscience is seared, there's just no feeling whatsoever. And that was really where the Israelites had gotten to. Because as you go through the book, you see that the Lord will confront them with certain things. And when the Lord would confront them, they would argue with God about it. Well, what do you mean? What, what do you mean that this is wrong? What do you mean? What are you, what are you saying? Even as the, in verse number 2, the Lord said something positive like, I've loved you. And you know how they responded to the God? Wherein hast thou loved us? What do you mean you've loved us? Other places, God would, would confront them with their sin and their response was one of a, a complete desensitization. They didn't even realize that they were sinning. They had become so used to sin that it no longer affected them at all. You know, there are many Christians in our, in our country today, in our world today, in the same place. We have become so used to sin, it doesn't even affect us anymore. At one point, we were convicted about it, but we put that off and we became apathetic about it. Didn't really care, not that big of a deal. And we've gone on so long that now, when it's pointed out to us that these things are sinful, we don't even, we don't even acknowledge it anymore. It doesn't even phase us. Their sin was the sin of apathy and being desensitized. 
And ultimately, it boiled down to this. It was a sin of rebellion. To refuse to repent is rebellion. To refuse to admit that you're wrong. To refuse to say to God, yes, Lord, this is sin. I need to change it. That is rebellion. Let me give you a definition of rebellion. Rebellion is whenever you resist God's authority in your life. That's what rebellion is. The rebellion for the Israelites in Malachi was on full display in how they responded to the word of the Lord. So they were given the message from Malachi and other prophets throughout the generations. And oftentimes when they received the word of the Lord, they heard it. They knew what it said, but instead of responding with repentance, they rebelled. They resisted against it. You see, the answer for our spiritual woes is the word of the Lord. It's God's word. It's scripture is what we need. We don't need the psychologists. We don't need the religious pep talks. What we need is to be confronted with the truth of the word of God. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What we need to fix our spiritual woes is Scripture. And Malachi's goal in, in proclaiming the truth to his nation was to give them the word of the Lord. It was the burden of the word of the Lord from Malachi to Israel. He knew that what they needed was not some fancy uh, uh, polished presentation that was going to wow them. What they needed was to hear the plain truth of God's Word. And listen, we have the same need. I know that sometimes we, we think that what we need is some new thing, some new packaging, some new shiny uh, presentation of the Word of God. We need uh, th- to, to be wowed with it. But the fact of the matter is what we need more than anything else is the plain, simple truth of Scripture. We talked about this the other week that, you know, a lot of times what we need is actually not what we want. What we need are the simple, plain truths. While we want to be wowed, we want to be uh, impressed with with things, what we really need is the simple. We need the Word of God. Malachi's goal was to bring the sin of the nation to the forefront again so that they might see it, so that they might repent of it. He had a burden for the Word of the Lord. He wanted to give them the truth so that it would highlight, by contrast, the error that they were in. To use that illustration of the the desensitization, he wanted to remove the calluses and expose the tenderness beneath so that they might return to the Lord. We lose our tenderness when we rebel against God. Our will is hardened. Now turn back to the book of Malachi. And notice notice how this played out in Malachi. As he he shares his burden with the people in verse number 2. Here was God's word to Israel. I have loved you, saith the Lord. But notice their response. 
Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Go down to verse number 6. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? If I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. Here was God's word to the priests. You're not giving honor to the Lord as you ought to. Notice their response. And ye say, the end of verse number 6, Wherein have we despised thy name? And over and over again you see this repeated throughout the book. That Malachi will give them the word of the Lord. Here is the truth. And they would, we, they would respond with a hardened will. What are you talking about? What do you mean? No, that's not true. You've got it all wrong, Malachi. You've got it all wrong. We're right. You're wrong. Their will was hardened. The rebellious hearts of the people refused to respond to the word of God. God says something and they don't even pause to consider it. They immediately deny it. They immediately argue. They immediately question. They immediately resist the authority of God's word in their life. Rebellion is a serious crime. It was rebellion that cost King Saul his kingdom. In the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have the story of how Saul, in defiance of God's word, did something he shouldn't have done. He did not obey God. And on two different occasions, first with an improper sacrifice, second when he saved some of the Amalekites alive, he defied God's authority in his life and in essence said, I'm going to do what I want to do. And you know what the Lord said to him in 1 Samuel 15, 23? For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. I remember when I was a teenager, it seemed like we heard a message on that verse about every other week. And you know why? Because we needed to hear it. And we need to hear it just as much today as I did back then. Because every one of us has a stubborn, rebellious streak in us. That when we're confronted with our sin, our flesh immediately wants to go and and defend it or, or downplay it or deny it altogether. And that's rebellion which God says, listen to his words, it's as the sin of witchcraft. What's witchcraft? That's the worship of the devil. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. God says that if you are rebellious and stubborn against him and against his word, that it's just as if you were worshiping the devil or you were bowing down to idols. We don't see it that way though, do we? We don't see it as that severe of a sin. If we admit that there's any fault at all, we say, well, it's really not that bad. That's not what God says. A rebellious heart is a serious crime against God Almighty, because you are denying the creator God of the universe the authority that is rightfully His in your life. You are pushing Him off the throne, and what it boils down to is you're putting yourself on it. And you're saying, no, I'm going to call the shots. I'm going to rule my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. And you have set yourself up as your own idol, as your own God. This was Israel's sin. The sins of apathy. The sin of rebellion. 
But notice number two, God's statement. Don't overlook this fact that at the beginning of this message, this book of Malachi, the very first thing that God says to Israel, He doesn't call them out for all their sins yet. But the very first thing that He says is, I have loved you. Here's God's statement. Israel was in sin, but yet God affirmed to them His unconditional love. I've loved you. Notice that this is not in the past tense. It, it may appear that way in, 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 our, in our translation, but the truth is that it's, it's an ongoing sense. I have, I am, and I will always. I've loved you. The idea is that God started loving them way back in the past and He is continuing to love them. And it's because of God's love for him that, for them that He is directing Malachi to give them this warning. One of the most compelling reasons we have to live holy and righteous is God's unconditional love for us. You know, for the Israelites, God did not love them because they had earned it. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says, The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath he had sworn unto your fathers. Hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God told Israel, I haven't loved you because you were anything special. I've loved you because I've loved you. That's unconditional love. And the same unconditional love that God had for the Israelites, God has for you and for me. God does not love you because you do right. We should do right because God loves us. And I'm so thankful that God's love for me is not dependent on my behavior. Because if it was, I can tell you right now, God wouldn't love me very much. And if you're honest, you would admit the same. God's love is not dependent on our somehow earning it, somehow being worthy of it. It is unconditional. And God begins by reaffirming that to the Israelites. And tonight God reaffirms to you and to me, I loved you. But notice man's ungrateful response in Malachi verse, chapter 1 verse 2. Man said, the Israelites said, wherein hast thou loved us? What do you mean you've loved us, God? Where's the proof? Oh yeah? You say you love us? Prove it. Can you believe this kind of a response? They contradicted God. They denied the fact of God's unconditional love. Now we have the benefit of living on this side of the cross. We can look back and we can look at the ultimate example of God's unconditional love. That is the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the ultimate proof of God's love. But here's the question. God's love for us is an undeniable fact. Now, you can deny it, but it doesn't change it. 
it's still true. So the question is, will you accept it and respond properly? Or will you deny it and continue to live in rebellion? To accept God's unconditional love is to use that then as a motivation to live righteously. To live as God wants you to live. Look in Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. After God declared his love to Israel, he spent the re- most of the rest of the book warning them over and over again to repent. 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 And he warned them that if they didn't repent of their sin, there were going to be consequences. Now some people may might cynically ask, well, if God loved them so much, then why was He threatening them over and over again? But that's just it. He wasn't, it wasn't a threat. It was a simple warning. There's consequences. God wasn't threatening them. He was warning them that if they didn't repent, judgment was going to come. Look at Malachi 4, verse number 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave neither root nor branch. There is a day of judgment coming. And to every one of us, God issues the same warning. That, hey, there is a day of judgment coming that we're going to stand before God and give an account of our life. Now, for the Christian, it will be different. It's not an eternal judgment that we face, but it is still judgment before the the, the judgment seat of Christ that we will answer for our life, for what we have done. And if we live wickedly, we will regret it. Look in Malachi 3 and verse number 7. Here's a very clear instance of God giving them the solution to their problem. Malachi 3, 7, even... From the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, say the Lord of hosts. Return unto me. They had backslidden. They had gotten away from the Lord. They were not doing what they should be doing. Their hearts were very far from Him. And God says, return unto me, and I will return to you. Very similar to what James says. Draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's what repentance is. It's turning from our sin to God. It's returning to where we ought to be. It's, It's leaving our backslidden state and getting back where we should be in our walk with God. I like that word backslidden. It's used in the prophets to describe the spiritual condition of Israel a couple of times. Like a backslidden heifer is the phrase that is used. Like trying to get this old cow up a muddy hill. and Every time you try to get her up, she just slides back down, slides back down. And that describes us so many times spiritually. We're not making progress. We're just sliding back down into the muck and the mire of our sin. We need to repent. We've seen Israel's sin. We've seen God's statement. And finally, let's notice the similarities, the parallels to us today. 
First of all, I think it's apparent that many Christians are apathetic. And I know it's easy to point fingers at other people out there and these denominations and so on and so forth, but let's just, let's just get honest with ourselves tonight. Let's pause for a moment and let's honestly think about this. Have we allowed ourselves to get apathetic towards sin? When was the last time that you did something sinful, said something sinful, or thought something sinful? And what was your reaction? Was there a genuine sorrow that led to repentance? Or did you do that sinful thing or say that sinful word and it didn't really bother you that much? Did it break your heart to think that you had just violated a command of the holy God who loved you so much that He gave His Son to die on the cross to save you from that very sin that you committed? Did it bother you that that sin that you just said, eh, no big deal, was a sin that put Jesus on the cross? Many Christians have gotten apathetic to, towards sin. They're just kind of lukewarm. You're not going to find them at the bars on Friday nights. They're not going to be partying at the clubs over the weekend. They're not going out there and robbing banks. They're not mass murderers. But they're just kind of, meh, lukewarm. Romans 12, 11 says that we're not supposed to be slothful in business. We're supposed to be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. The word fervent has the idea of boiling over. God wants you to be boiling over with enthusiasm for serving Him and for living holy and for doing what is right. Listen, the world ought to look at us and think we're crazy. That's part of what it means to be a peculiar people. Not just weird, but we're different because we love the Lord and we want to serve Him and we want to do what is right. And that's why we don't do the things that they do. And that's why we do the good things that the Lord wants us to do. Many Christians are apathetic. Some have even gotten to the point that they too are desensitized. Maybe you didn't respond with apathy towards sin because you can't remember the last time you were convicted over something sinful. When was the last time that you remember the Holy Spirit convicting you about something specific? If, if you're struggling right now to recall then one of two things is true. Either you have nearly achieved sinless perfection or you have become desensitized to a great degree. And if you can't remember the last time that you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit over some sin in your life, that ought to alarm you. And it ought to cause you to go before God and say, Lord, what is wrong? Why am I not feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit? What am I missing? How have I gotten to the point that I, I know I'm sinning? All right, let's just be honest. How have I gotten to the point that I'm not, I don't care and I don't feel it anymore? 
And if we would take inventory of our lives, we might understand that part of a good part of what has led us to this is that we have indulged sinfulness in our lives so much that it doesn't phase us anymore. We are overexposed to wickedness and godlessness. We hear people curse and it doesn't even make us cringe. We see things as we walk through the store that we ought not look at and it doesn't even bother us. We see a headline that ought to make us turn our minds and turn our heads away and we don't, we don't even flinch. We watch TV and if it's not in the show, it's in the commercials that we see immorality and impurity paraded in front of us and it doesn't bother us at all. We think impure thoughts and we entertain impure desires and it doesn't affect us in the least because we have allowed ourselves to become desensitized. We've gotten to the point of Ephesians 4.19 that says who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness. And like the Israelites, number three, many Christians are just outright rebellious against God. You confront them with the truth of God's word about sin and they say, no, what are you, what are you talking about? There's nothing wrong with that. You're being judgmental. You're a legalist. I, I hope that that defense against wicked living has become so trite and tired that people abandon it very, very soon. Look, don't call someone a legalist because they opened God's word and they said, hey, you know what? God says this and you're doing the opposite. Maybe you're wrong. It's not legalism. That's the truth. But many Christians resist God's authority in their life. They're told they need to confess their sin and forsake it. And if you don't, there will be consequences. But yet they resist. They harden their hearts. As Hebrews 3.15 says the Israelites did in the provocation. So yes, there's some similarities in that many Christians are apathetic. They're desensitized. They're rebellious. But I'm so thankful for this last similarity. And that is this. God still loves us. Just like God said to the Israelites in Malachi, I've loved you. God says to apathetic, desensitized, rebellious Christians. I've loved you. I've loved you. And it is that love of God that leads Him to correct us, that leads Him to chasten us, that leads Him even to scourge us so that we might repent and we might get right with God. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 12 as we close. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. It is because God loves that God corrects. 
And he only corrects his children. Verse 7, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Earthly fathers discipline their children, not other people's children, their children. And if they're good earthly fathers, they will do it. God is the perfect heavenly father. And he disciplines, he chastens, he scourges with perfection. Why? Verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. You know, our, our, our society does not understand, by and large, what a good parent is. It, it, it just blows my mind, some of the notions that are out there about parenting. Especially nowadays with social media influencers and things like that. You have these parenting experts that get out there and they you know, put together these slick videos about how to raise, their, how to raise your children right. And it's some 23-year-old with a 2-year-old child. Come back in 20 years when your kids are raised and let's see how these things worked out. Then we might listen to you. Now, I'm not putting down 23-year-olds. I don't know if we have any here tonight or not. but I'm just saying when it comes to things like rearing children, maybe we need to listen to the people that have some experience, some godly biblical experience. And one of the things that is frequently floated, and it, it, it happens all the time, it's not just in our day and age, is, is this notion... That, that children need to be given the, the, the freedom and the liberty to, you know, to be themselves, to make their own choices and to, and to uh, uh, you know, develop in their own way. There's a great problem with that. Children don't have the wisdom to do that. You can't give a three-year-old all the choices in the world and expect them to make the right choices. That's why God gave them parents. And so part of the process is teaching your child, this is right, this is wrong, we don't do what is wrong, we do what is right, and enforcing that with discipline, both positive and negative. This is a whole other message. I'm about to get off on a rabbit trail. But let's just go back to the example that we have in Hebrews chapter 12. What does a good father do? What does a father who truly loves his children, what does he do? He chastens them. When they get out of line, when they do what is wrong, He chastens them. He does what is necessary so that they understand the choice they made was a bad choice, will lead to bad consequences. Not because He's angry or hateful, but the exact opposite. Because He loves them too much to let them ruin their lives with sin and not intervene. And God does that for you and for me. Why? So that we might have that peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's what God wants. He wants us to enjoy what it is to live righteously and holy and thus to walk closely with the Lord. If you're a child of God and you are doing what is wrong, God will deal with you. Sometimes it's a chastening. Sometimes it's a scourging. But God loves you too much to let you ruin your life without intervening. And that's what God did for the, the Israelites again and in Malachi, I've loved you. And because I love you, you need to know you're wrong and there's judgment coming. But the message was not just for them. It's also for us tonight.
that if we do not respond with repentance to the Holy Spirit's conviction in our life, that it will lead to that apathy and ultimately that total desensitization and a life of rebellion that ultimately ends by experiencing the consequences of our sin, the chastening and the scourging of the Lord. Instead, we need to repent and enjoy our relationship with the Lord. Heavenly Father, you are indeed our Heavenly Father, a loving and a kind, a wise Heavenly Father. You know us better than we know ourselves. And so, Lord, forgive us when we question what you say. Forgive us for our rebellion. Forgive us for our apathy. Lord, please help us to be sensitive to sin again. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.